Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood, whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. Scripture reading will be from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold himself guiltless who takes his name in vain. We all carry a number of names. I'm James Cuman, just to state the obvious, but I also carry my names, my identities, uh, based on geography. I was born in Portland, Oregon, and I certainly identified as an Oregonian the entire time I lived in California. Moved to New Jersey, suddenly became a West Coaster. Now I'm back in Washington and identify as a Washingtonian, a Seattleite. I suppose in particular, a Finn Hillian, given the neighborhood I live in here in Kirkland. And then of course, there are the names that come from what we do, our jobs, our career, potentially a, a hobby. There's names like pastor of Inglewood Presbyterian Church, and in an earlier life, I was city planner for the city of West Covina and Yorba Linda, California. We find identities and names in local sports teams, Seattle Mariners, or not-so-local sports teams, Go Blue, University of Michigan. In fairness, uh, Liz worked for the University of Michigan. Her parents graduated from University of Michigan. We lived in Ann Arbor for six years, so we have some loyalties. We, of course, we, uh, we also take on the names of the particular schools that we actually attended. I'm a graduate of Pomona College, and I'm deeply grateful for the education, the opportunities I received there to, to learn, to study, to engage, to interact. I'm likewise deeply grateful for my time at Princeton Theological Seminary. This would be my diploma case. And yes, the diploma is written in Latin, as my son Jonathan discovered just the other night. Joining us this morning, welcome. Glad to have you with us. 
We are this summer taking our time exploring the themes of Exodus throughout Scripture, both the original story in the Old Testament and the ways that the themes of God's freedom, God's coming into history to rescue his people and give us freedom, the way that theme emerges throughout the entire story of the Bible. This particular morning, we find ourselves at Mount Sinai, where in many ways, what we are seeing God's people experience is a wedding ceremony. Now, when we look at pictures like these, this happens to be my own wedding, even across cultures, we recognize that this is a a ceremony, a wedding ceremony. The white dress, the people assembled, the pastor up front, even folks who are unfamiliar with Western Christian weddings would recognize that something important is going on here. Likewise, when we get to this story in the Exodus narrative, we recognize pieces of a covenant-making ceremony. God is taking this people, Israel, to be his own, and this people, Israel, is taking God to be their God. Even the fact that we see Moses going up and down the mountain these multiple times, he's up on the mountain and can see the people down below. Moses is essentially playing the role of matchmaker as God and his people enter this covenant together. As we saw a few weeks ago in the ancient Near East, mountains were understood as a place where the divine supernatural reality intersected with the earthly daily life existence of us as human beings, where heaven and earth kind of literally met. And so in this place, at this mountain, here this people, Israel, is receiving this covenant commitment from God, and he's inviting them to make a covenant commitment in return. The precise language and the way the ceremony plays itself out would have been not exactly like a marriage for them. It's not an exact analogy, though it's probably the closest one we have in our culture. In the ancient world, it would have been very recognizable as a ceremony of covenant, like a sovereign great king would make with a lesser vassal king. But here's the amazing piece of this. God isn't making this covenant commitment just with Moses. Moses is the go-between. God is making the kind of covenant with all the people that in the cultures around them would have only been made between a high king and a lesser king. God is literally ennobling these people by making a covenant with each and every one of them. This nation of formerly enslaved people, brick makers, is being raised to the status of royal representatives of the creator of heaven and earth. And it's in that context that we can begin to hear the famous Ten Commandments, and this morning particularly the first three, in the way that we need to hear them, to make full use of them, and find full joy in them. In the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament is written in originally, the Ten Commandments aren't actually referred to as the Ten Commandments. They're the Ten Words. 
And really the first word that God speaks is his identity. And God spoke all these words, the ten of them that are coming up, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He begins his ten words, he begins this covenant making with his people with reminding them of who he is. You were enslaved and I brought you out. As he said just a chapter ago, on eagle's wings, I brought you out through the Red Sea, eliminating your enemies so they was, there would be no chance of being afraid anymore that you would be recaptured and re-enslaved. I am the God who brought you out of the house of slavery. I am the one who is making covenant, eternal commitment to you and invite you into eternal commitment with me, says God. And it's in that context that we hear this first command, have no other gods before me or in my place. And why would you in that context? With our rational minds and seeing the story, why would you choose anyone else to attempt to worship and honor and trust than the one who has freed you, created you, and then freed you from your own foolishness. Every one of us is in that condition. Next word simply continues on in the same theme. Have no idols, make no images, don't substitute some other representative of me because, and here's the truth, we human beings are made in the image of God. We human beings, back in the beginning of Genesis, when God created us and everything, we were meant to be God's royal representatives on earth. So having a living image, living, breathing, talking, responding, interacting, dialoguing, loving, caring, creating, inventing image, why would we take a hunk of wood or metal, whether a statue like in the old days or a really nice car or a bank account now, why would we take something else and put it in the place of the one who loves us and made us in his own image? Foolishness. And now we come to the third command is God makes this covenant commitment and invites his people to in turn be covenantally committed to him. The third command, the third word is, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses the name of God. Now, typically in the church, and this is true across time and across cultures, this command often gets reduced to a sense of don't make promises in God's name that you're not going to keep or don't use God's name as a swear word. And, and all of that is, is certainly true. But in the Hebrew language, there's a much deeper, richer sense to this command. The word take is actually something that means closer to bear or carry. And the same word gets used for the priest who, as part of his garments, the high priest actually bears, he carries, same word, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel into God's presence. And in fact, he bears and carries the name of Yahweh 
into his ministry with the people. Later on, God will explicitly say that this people, this people Israel, bears his name. His name has been spoken over them. And of course, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, in the beginning of this covenantal commitment ceremony, God speaks his words to his people, inviting them to be a royal nation, a nation of priests, the intermediaries between him and all the other nations of the world. They are to bear and carry God's name in a way that befits the true character of God. For me, this changes the third command, this third word, from being one of the simplest and sort of a, you know, flyover commandment, don't cuss, okay? You know, we all kind of work on that to varying degrees, but, you know, fairly easy, fairly straightforward. All right, moving on to Sabbath, which we'll get to next week. But instead, for me, this sense of bearing and carrying God's name in a way that befits his character and represents him well to the world changes this third command from flyover territory to one of the richest commands in the whole group. We have this invitation from God to wear his name. The same way that I wear my college t-shirt proudly, I'm invited to wear the name of the creator of heaven and earth and represent him in his goodness and mercy and justice. That's an amazing and fearful invitation. And this invitation is for us, for us to identify ourselves with God and with God's people. Just on a really simple level, every time we pray what's called the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, we say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What are we praying? That God's name, God's identity, God's reality would be represented well through us and in the world. And so right here, in this kind of setting, online, we have a very simple way we can take first steps to doing this. Share. Share this on social media. If you've been impacted at all by our gathering this morning, share it on your Facebook feed or share the YouTube link. Identify yourself with God's people. And if Inglewood Church isn't your regular congregation, that's fine. Welcome, glad to have you. But find a group of followers of Jesus you can identify yourself with and then share that content to identify yourself in public and represent God and God's character well. Honestly, that's one of the simpler, easier, lower bar ways to identify yourself, right? If we're being perfectly honest. The deeper, more profound way is to begin to let God reshape our hearts so that at the level of our motives and our impulses, the direction that our emotions take us begin to represent God well. This is where Jesus goes with the Sermon on the Mount. After we're done here, go pick up the Bible if you have one or go online. ESV.org will get you a very excellent translation. Bible Gateway will get you a bunch of them. But go on and 
read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, the biography that was written by Matthew. A section where Jesus speaks at length. I think actually reading it, you can fairly look at it as a dialogue where Jesus is speaking and then taking questions and then speaking some more, although we only have Jesus' side of it. But the point being, watch what Jesus does. And don't just watch, take in what Jesus does. That he's aiming at our hearts. To not just think well of God, but to accept his blessing as peacemakers and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. To not just follow the the letter of the commandment by not killing, congratulations, you're not a murderer. There's forgiveness if you have been, but don't just be satisfied with not killing. Don't even want to. Don't hate. Let your heart be changed. Not just not committing adultery, not breaking a covenant commitment sexually with another person, but don't even turn other people into objects by lusting after them. Don't just sit back and say, well, I don't hate my enemy. Jesus invites us to love our enemies. Again, he's after the deepest levels of who we are that in the realm of our impulse, we would represent a God of mercy and extravagant justice well. But friends, let's be honest with ourselves and with God. True love always has a public face. And so again, the core of this command is that our internal transformation would show forth in our external actions and of course our words. So I invite you to do an inventory for each one of us to take a look at our life, our communication, our speech, our generosity or lack thereof, how we use our time, the way we eat with gratitude or or not, the way we sleep trustingly or anxiously, the way we exercise both physically and spiritually, the way we invest ourselves in our relationship, befriending others or not to take an honest inventory, each one of us, and simply ask the question, do I represent God well in how I live my life, how I invest my time, how I invest in people, how I rest, and let a covenant-keeping God lead us forward into new life. Because this is an ennobling invitation. This is the opportunity to represent the God of the universe to the world, to begin to see the reconciliation of all things through Jesus, interpersonally, societally, us and all of creation, and all of us can recognize the ways we've participated in those larger brokennesses around us. This week, take every opportunity to live into this invitation, this word, to worship God, to accept no substitutes, and to represent him with joy, 
to represent the one who has so amazingly and mercifully welcomed us. Amen.